want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Today on the podcast, we're doing something a little different. This is part one of a three-part interview with one of Australia's most high-profile company directors. As always, I'm joined by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Hello, Michael. What we're looking for in the next few episodes is a better understanding of how the board operates, how information flows between the board and the executive team, and what happens when things don't quite work out. Our special guest in the studio for these episodes is John Poynton AO. John was, until recently, a director of Crown Resorts. He's served and continues to serve on the boards of a number of Australian-listed companies, not-for-profit institutions, and federal government boards, including as a current member of the Board of Guardians for the Future Fund. We're starting this part of the series with a look at the role of personalities on boards. John Poynton, welcome to Three Peaks Leadership. Hi, Michael. What does the right mix of personalities on a, on a board look like to you? Is it having some people who are the more kind of studious ones who, who are very detail-focused and some that are bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the expression hybrid vigour. I think, you know, when you get different expertise, you know, one-on-one and one can be ten, you know, mm-hmm. like. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not a detailed person, so I rely upon other people around the board and in management who are detailed. But I also think, you know, the idea of stretching your targets and dreaming what might be possible is, is what actually changes things and what actually delivers out performance. So that's kind of, you know, what I gravitate towards in my fellow board members. But, but I think it's more about each person making a contribution based on their experience and their expertise and where they see they can add value. And some people in a board meeting won't say much because it's not in their area of expertise and others they'll talk a lot. That doesn't mean they're dominating. It means that that's playing to their strengths. But at, at the end of the day, <clears throat> it's everybody understanding why they're there, feeling like the environment is is such that they can express their views without being shut down um, and that everybody's, you know, got a role and, and a right to be there. Probably leads quite well into a question about the perception of directors and the perception of a board from from outside. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it's a, it's a very strong misconception that directors just turn up four times a year, they come in, have a chat for a couple of hours, and then that's it. And then, then they don't really get involved until the next meeting. There is an awful lot of work, a lot of preparation that is required to be there because in the end, from the the perspective of an outsider, the board has to sign off Mm. and they have to be accountable for what they've signed off on. So it is a it is a misconception that it's just Yeah and 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 obviously there's high profile focus put on Boards that have had problems or companies that have had problems and well, where were the directors? What were they doing? And you know, all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm just, when you were talking, I was just thinking what the largest board pack I ever got was. And I think it's five or 600 pages. Um, 
And we had a chat about that. Well, maybe 200 would be better than 500. But the point you're making is absolutely valid. There's a lot of reading, a lot of interpretation, a lot of judgment, analysis and all that, and then iteration with management. Oh, by the way, I do think as a chair that it's healthy for individual directors to be able to have their own relationships with senior management. People shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, as long as, again, it's treated respectfully and people are not criticising you know, people individually outside of a board. But you should, and you referred to it, you know, you've got a fiduciary duty to understand what's going on. So you should be able to dig into management and, and ask them a few questions. Have And that that's good for them as well because it shows the board's interested. But, but I don't know many boards that only meet four times a year because that would be pretty impossible to, to satisfy your obligations if that's all you were doing. A question about Crown, if I may. Mm. It's definitely worth pointing out, I think you were the, the sixth director to resign following the release of the, the Bergen inquiry, but that inquiry did, in fact, make no criticism of you whatsoever and, in fact, that stated that your expertise and your experience would be valuable in, in what comes next mm. for the company. So that's obviously an example of a company that, that was extremely high profile, mm. extremely high pressure. But the part that kind of I, I don't understand then is how a regulator can have a view that mm. essentially you should resign when the findings of the inquiry said that you would be important for the rebuild. Well, if you're bemused about that, you can understand that I am as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, what was the point in the Commissioner Bergen having all that time and listening to all the evidence um, and then coming up with a very clear set of views or positions or, or, in fact, almost directives, only to have someone who hadn't been through that entire process make a different judgment call altogether based on something that was not part of a legal criterion. So, as you're referring to, Bergen says this person is, um, you know, important to the future of the company. The chair of ILGA comes along and says, well, yes, I accept that this person's been a contributing a functioning, fully functioning and sort of effective director that there are no issues whatsoever about his probity, you know, um, compliance, you know, in every other respect. This person's actually totally okay to be on the board, but because of a previous association is not. Well, look it up. Where does it say that the, you need to get off the board because of that? There's any number of people who've had association. So I guess my point was that and it, it's sort of a broader issue about regulators making things up as they go along, dare I say it, or, or coming to a view that's at odds with perhaps what one might have expected. And I can assure you that lots and lots of very senior and high-profile directors have been in touch with me to say this is not a trend we like. It's sort of me today and, or, you know, them yes. tomorrow. So I think regulators that step outside what might be expected and make things up as they go along um, for whatever purpose, <clears throat> then have to be very careful themselves that subsequently people go, well, hang on, how did that happen? Because at the end of the day, you know, the company gets denuded of experienced directors and then the shareholders go, well, hang on, what right did the that person have to make that directive? Because it's not in the law and we're guided by the law. And it's certainly not in anybody's interest to have, as you point them out, denuded boards. No. And so why would anybody be a non-executive director? Well, exactly. Today? Yeah. And, and plenty of people I know say, based on what's been going on, no, there's no way they're going to be 
taking on any non-exec roles in, in listed land. <clears throat> That's a shame because that, a tragedy, yeah. Yeah, that, that expertise is then lost yes. to the economy. And depending on what you think about the value or otherwise of non-exec directors, that's in, you know, a shame. And if that's where it's heading, then we need to be careful. But, but I think, you know, the whole issue around all of that was why make decisions on the run? I mean, one of the things this person said, and it's kind of, as you can imagine, something that sort of concerns me. They said, you must resign immediately because of an association with James Packer and Cons Press, because if you don't, I'm not going to give Sydney a licence. So you must go immediately. What I'd think was lost a little bit was the fact that there were something like 10 or even 15 other conditions that the ILGA chair put upon Crown before he was going to do that, was before he was going to give a licence. So not just what the makeup of the board might be, but all these other things to do with auditing and money laundering, et cetera. Well, guess what? They still don't have a licence. So why did I have to go immediately eight weeks ago? Like it's a nonsense if you think about it. So... I think that's where people get concerned. We understand if we're working within a set of guidelines and we understand exactly what we're all there to do and you've got this amount of power, Mr Regulator, we'll all work together. Um, but when you find that these pronouncements are being made on the run, off the cuff and in the public arena, I mean, I've still not spoken to the Chair of Ilgar. You would have thought that if he had a problem, he'd pick up the phone and say, this is how it's going to be. <clears throat> so... I just make the broader point that regulators themselves are regulated um, and they need to be careful that they don't step outside their their, their sort of um, set of rules. Taking, sorry, just taking that pendulum, which is where it seems to be, which is that people like yourself are discouraged and, you're, and, and people with experience are discouraged from taking board positions. Mm. So who do you get now replacing experienced <sighs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was in, it was difficult. And I always saw myself as part of the solution. There had only been on the board for a couple of years and, um, you know, trying to sort it out. So why would you leave someone in place who'd been there for 10 years through the whole train wreck? Yes. Um, <clears throat> to sort it out and kick people off the board or ask them to go who'd actually only been there for a relatively brief yeah. period. That's, of course, not escaped people's attention either. So why? So the pendulum swung this way. Mm. What do you think? Brings it back to well, step. but I, th I think well, th this all might be overtaken by events. If in fact Blackstone or somebody else buys the CPH stake and therefore you know gets control of the company, whether one hundred percent it gets delisted or not, then the board changes anyway. Um, if that doesn't happen, and I think it will at some point, um, then obviously you need to rebuild the the, uh, the board. <clears throat> but, you know, it, until and unless the uncertainty is over, and indeed people still need to get approved to be a board member, it's going to be uncertain. It's going to be a, a difficult period because no one's going to really know what, what the future is going to bring, which means a really high-quality director might say, well, I'm just going to wait. Yep. One of the things we didn't talk about, which is an interesting thing, and I don't know if you've read about Christine Holgate talking about her relationship with the chair of Australia Post, yeah. there needs to be more sunlight put on that because that is a real problem, what happened there. And uh, not that I know her, but I'd certainly accept what she said was was true in the sense that, you know, when a CEO gets thrown under a bus, which seemed to happen there, that actually doesn't help you know, the, the whole kind of relationship between 
you know, if you like, chairs and, and CEOs or indeed boards and CEOs because, again, you expect that you're going to have this relationship and you're going to be, you know, looked after or, or protected and then you're not, um, then everyone goes, well, that could happen to me. That's exactly right. I mean, as a CEO looking at the, looking at the chair, one of the things that I expected of my chair was to have my back. Mm. And in the instance where they didn't, I knew that it was time. It was mm. definitely time to mm. go. But th- it was difficult to find a replacement because the person who would, would be coming in would be subject to the same chair. Same thing, yeah. And I can imagine that the search for CEO for Aussie Post at the moment would be incredible. Well, it probably just got a bit harder after yesterday, I would have thought, yes. because that person, you know, whoever it might be, looking to take on that gig, you'd want to have a fairly – kind of deep analysis and you'd certainly want to talk to the immediate predecessor. That's exactly right. We, we talked about being thrown under a bus. I mean, we, we, we talk about it as, as one of the things as a CEO or a leader you never do. We talked to a naval admiral who would be prepared to take a bullet for his team as they would for him. We referenced um, Victoria where Premier Andrews threw his health minister publicly and awfully it's just, under a bus. It causes everyone to sort of not have that camaraderie. And I'm not saying that it's blind camaraderie and everyone's looking after each other, you know, to, <clears throat> to the, the, the full extent if, if it's not justified. But there needs to be that trust. And, and if it's not there, then you're not going to have as functional a relationship or organisation as you could have. That's right. And I think that then percolates down through the board. Mm. So the board members start to get a bit twitchy, mm. which is not good. Mm. And then senior management, which is really bad. And then it actually mm. it dissipates down to the troops. And that's that's when you start to have yeah. structural, real structural, cultural. Yeah. And, and, and that's why boards should be totally relaxed about understanding what culture looks like inside an organisation. So encouraging management to really feed back to the board just how how healthy the organisation is, you know, whether there's any sort of lurking issues around harassment or all the things that we're kind of reading about. But also that the board itself could be, you know, is able to say without fear or favour how it's feeling about the relationship between its members and particularly with the chair and relationship back down yeah. into management. And you should do that on a regular basis because the world's moving very quickly. And if people are not prepared to do that, then it sells you something because, you, sh- you know, everyone's in it together and you should know exactly, and, hey, Lev, you know, I'm, I've got a problem here, yeah. not um, I wish I could say something, but I'm too yeah. frightened to. Yeah. Well, I've certainly served on boards where board reviews have been conducted in camera. In a perfunctory way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, quick, let's make this go away. As yes, absolutely. As yeah. That's not good. No. On the uh, the Australia Post example and Christine Holgate, a lot of the coverage has been as well about the immense personal toll that it mm. has taken mm. on her because it's a very high-profile thing to, to go through. And she's spoken in this submission about the fact that she has now mm. needed professional help and, mm. and medication and that it just was the most difficult, harrowing time in her mm. career. And comparing it in a, in a way to Crown mm. and that mm. what I imagine would have been a really difficult period because it was so high profile. Mm. And you have, looking at it from the perspective of an outsider, there appeared to be very real questions raised, particularly from the findings of the, the inquiry about the independence of some, mm. of some directors. Mm. How much were you worried then that you would be tainted with that 
in the eyes of the public? Well, I, I think you're right, and I, I think it would be arrogant to compare what I went through with what Christine went through. It's much worse for her. But I would say that when someone's running a high-profile media campaign, I mean, the first time I learned that the chair of ILGA didn't want me to be on the board was on the 7.30 report. <laughs> um you know, he didn't tell me, he didn't call me up, didn't didn't sort of say, hey, you know, this is how I'm feeling or give me any opportunity to respond. I just said, no, I think, you know, I've thought about it, it's got to go. Um, no, no legal criterion at all. And the power imbalance is huge. You know, there you've got the chair of the regulator holding out that they're going to hold up the granting of a licence, you know, for a very substantial enterprise because you're on the board. And you go, well, hang on, well, what about what the commissioner said? No, 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 I don't care about that. So then you go, well, then it was about the narrative, just making sure that, and your point about reputational impact, that people knew exactly what the commissioner Bergen had said verbatim. This person's ongoing involvement is critical to the success of the company. Well, how does that work when this other person's saying, no, I don't care about any of that? He has to go. So to me, notwithstanding what the press said about, oh, he's holding out and this and that, it was all about trying to get the narrative, which again, when you're one individual and you've got people being, you know, briefed, media being briefed and, you know, you've, it's, you've got to be fairly assertive about it and it isn't fun because all these people that don't read the nuances go, oh, gee, you know, how are you? Are you all right? Mm, it doesn't look too good, does it? And you go, that's the very reason why I've got to try and get the narrative right. Yes. And the same would be, could be said then about some of the other things that emerged during the inquiry in terms of money laundering and the junket operators mm. and things like that. The questions over, well, what was the board doing? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why exactly. didn't they take and, action? Did they know? Yeah. And so at, at the Crown Resorts level, obviously I got involved in late 18, pretty much everything that was, uh, you know, the subject of the inquiry had occurred years before I got there, you know, the China arrests in 15 and, you know, the the the, the stuff that was in 60 Minutes. Um, and, of course, it was very easy for it to be sensationalised. There were some things that came out in the media that, in fact, were proved not to be a problem but didn't get any press. So, yeah, everyone focused on these, these things. I mean... Certainly things like junket operators, there was one particular junket operator w which was singled out, but Star's been dealing with that same junket for the whole time and, and there was no mention of that. So, and, and some of the other things around, um, you know, money laundering, I mean, it was pretty clear that the board didn't know the accounts were going through. Was it the word facilitating? That makes it sound like there's actually some real encouragement. But in fact, if it just meant that systems were not operating as effectively as they could have, then, you know, that's a problem. I'll just give you an idea. One of the board meetings we had, which was during the time the banks were having all this issue with money laundering, the company brought in its own people to give us a report on money laundering, and then they brought in an expert. So I remember asking the expert, and it's actually minuted, can you assure me and the board that the company has best practice money laundering, anti-money laundering systems? Yes, I can. So then you go, that's my point earlier about, well, just how deeply does a non-exec delve into that. You think, well, I've heard from management, I've heard from management's expert, I feel okay that we're, you know, we're not going to have any huge dramas. Well, maybe this person didn't know everything they should have, but from a non-exec director's point of view, it does make it hard when you've gone to the trouble of asking that amount of detail. So, and any more is overstepping your reach. Yeah, exactly. You can't be going And then, And then the thing you talk about 
independence, there were, you know, obviously issues around that and, and Bergen didn't have any problem with that. But there were other people on the border who'd had long-standing associations, one still there, um, which was not referred to at all. But, you know, was that person independent? Not sure, but, you know, it's fair quite. I think ASX guidelines say if you've been on a board for more than 10 years, you're not independent. So there were lots of little things that, you know, you kind of raise all sorts of, you know, rhetorical or hypothetical questions. That's part one of our special three-part interview with John Poynton, AO, one of Australia's most experienced and high-profile company directors and corporate advisors. Next time on Three Peaks Leadership, Lev and I will be talking with John more about the communication between the board and the executive team, the skills required on both sides, and the links between the culture of the board and the culture of the company. Make sure you've hit subscribe or follow on the podcast so it lands in your playlist as soon as it's released. And if you haven't already, pick up your copy of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond from Booktopia, Amazon, Dimmix, or basically anywhere that sells books online. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Philip Levinson